Morning. Morning. Uh, most of you know who I am. My name is Wendell Moses. I'm filling in for Tim Jennings. So um, those of you who are expecting him, sorry. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together to study your word. Be with us. Send your spirit into each of our hearts and lives and minds. Help us to think clearly. Help us to remember the things that we have studied and that we may share with others. May we honor you in this time together. Amen. This is the beginning of a new quarter, um, lesson number one, and this is about the sanctuary and the sanctuary doctrine. Each of the weekly, um, the days of the week this week covers a different aspect of the heavenly sanctuary. So where does God live? God's residence, throne room, worship in heaven, courtroom, place of salvation, and statements about heaven with the commentary on, the Sabbath, on Friday's lesson. So what is the sanctuary doctrine? Can you, can you give it in a succinct manner to someone who's never heard it? Restoration and vindication. Restoration and vindication. And vindication. Okay. I had the privilege yesterday of, of going around and, and asking some of my coworkers at the hospital um, about what the sanctuary was, etc. And I'll get to that a little bit later. But um, I, in the end, they said, okay, well, tell us, you know, what is the sanctuary um, thing that you're going to talk about? And it's like, oh, brother. And in about two, I said, okay, it'll take me two minutes. And about 12 minutes later, I had finished. And I realized I did not have a succinct statement, you know, hopefully it was coherent, but it wasn't succinct. Yes? I think that's very interesting because um, I couldn't have even told you what the defining doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist Church was until, you know, maybe five or six years ago being involved with this, but that is the defining or the distinguishing doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And when you ask people what that is, people generally say, oh, I, I would say the Sabbath, but it's not. The sanctuary right. doctrine is the distinguishing yeah. doctrine of our church. There are other um, denominations that have the Seventh-day Sabbath as one of their tenets. Or the state of the dead. Or the state of the dead or whatever, um, but not the sanctuary doctrine. So um, now I have an illustration here in my pocket. Um, Many of you know that I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, and um, what I do is mechanical, okay? I love mechanical things. I, um, I have a woodworking shop in my basement. I, um, for the first time this week, made boards. Um, made boards. Took a tree and cut it you know, with a chainsaw, and then I took it to my bandsaw and made, and made boards, and they're now drawing in my basement. Um, Something else that you, anyway, whatever. Um, so I like mechanical things, okay? What I do technically in surgery is a mechanical thing. And as teaching the residents, I'm teaching them techniques, number one, how to stay safe and how to get accomplished what you need to get done, you know, mechanically, okay? So one of the things I like is a mechanical puzzle, you know? Um, I asked my wife, I said, um, um, where's our mechanical puzzles? Because we used to have them all around the house. And um, she said, I don't know. I'll go look in Emily's room. And um, she went up and couldn't find them. And maybe they're packed away in a box somewhere or whatever. So she went out to Barnes and Nobles or somewhere and bought me two new ones. The only problem was I'm teaching the lesson today. They came in yesterday and I had to figure this thing out <laughs> before class. Okay. But I will have to say that um, it didn't take me too long to um, at least have some um, idea of how to do that, okay? And um, um, it's kind of fun, you know, um, when you do it right. Um, yeah, okay? The second one that she bought, I still have sitting on the table, not having figured it out yet, okay? Okay? So I would like to talk a little bit about a mechanical puzzle, okay? When you first look at a puzzle and play with it, it seems almost incomprehensible, 
You slide it back and forth. You try to do it. It doesn't work. You try hundreds of different ways of doing it, etc. Um, once you've figured it out, though, it's like, great! I figured it out, right? It's a great feeling. I mean, last evening, when I realized I could do this in front of you guys, it was a great feeling, okay? Now, once you have figured it out, there are several different attitudes you can take in relationship to this puzzle, me knowing how to do this puzzle, and you not, okay? Now, I can be a Pharisee. I know how to do the puzzle. You know? You don't. You know? Um, Or I could be a proselyte. Hey, you know, this is a neat puzzle. Just look, you know? And if I bring it to you and show you this puzzle and I'm all excited about this puzzle and then tell you, you know, the solution, will you have the same amount of delight and fun with this puzzle that I had? Well, wait a minute. You've got the puzzle. You've got the idea of how to do it. What's the difference? You worked it out for us. We never worked it out for ourselves. Okay. Back whenever the Rubik's Cube was a big thing, my cousin got a Rubik's Cube and he worked on that for, I think, weeks. Okay? Um, I have to be careful here because he may see this. Um, (laughs) He had an idea on what it took to figure out the Rubik's Cube. Okay. Now, I don't know how she did it. I don't know if her best friend showed her or whatever, but his wife <laughs> learned how to solve a Rubik's Cube. Okay? And so at Sabbath lunch, we were having potluck lunch kind of at his family's house, his parents' house, and um, he was struggling with this thing, etc. And his wife just reached over and picked it up and started playing with it and handed it back to him solved. What a moment of glory. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was an astounding moment. And then he couldn't believe that she did it. And so he messed it up again and handed it back to her. And she, you know, handed it back to him solved. And um, that, was, that was a great time. Um, not had by all, I might say. Um, so anyway... Um, what gives a person the most enjoyment is figuring it out for themselves, okay? And I think that's a lot to do with many of our beliefs as well, our religious beliefs. I better put this somewhere I don't bother. Yes? I've always thought of the sanctuary as a walk through the plan of salvation because everything stands for something. And then at the end, the most holy place... You know, every, everything has its order in a walk to the plan of salvation. Well, that's great, but that's not what I was told. Okay? I was told all about judgment and, and how it was, it was flicking off those who were going to burn and who weren't and how much and all that sort of stuff. You know, erasing your name from the book and, and whatever. Um, you know... There's a, a text, Psalms 34, 8. It says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the person who takes refuge in Him. Or, as a good news version says, Find out for yourself how good the Lord is. Happy are those who find safety with Him. Okay? And so, as we go through the... the, the um, the lesson today, um, I think that's also how the, the sanctuary doctrine is, okay? Um, uh, and, you know, I was, I was, had this puzzle, now I can't get it out of my pocket. Um, I had this puzzle, though, and I realized that I could solve this puzzle if I just forced it a little bit, Okay? It wasn't quite the right way of doing it, but I could get it done if I just forced it a little bit. 
And I think that's what some of us have done with the sanctuary doctrine. We've forced it a little bit. We've, we've made it into something that it isn't. Okay? And about a being who isn't. Um, so anyway. Um, why was the sanctuary doctrine such a big deal to the early Cynthia of his believers and the former Millerite movement people who formed this church? Okay, so they thought they had figured out when Jesus was come, okay? And then October 22, 1844 came and he didn't. And uh, they were devastated, okay? Now, did they believe that God had led them up to that point? Did they have manifestations of the Holy Spirit that they thought that Christ had really led them in this sojourn that they had. Okay? But they came up to a wall in which, you know, I mean, he didn't come. I mean, some of them hadn't, hadn't um, planted the crops. I mean, the farmers hadn't planted crops. Other people had sold their businesses or whatever. I mean, they were, they were done, you know. And then to have this not happen was, was devastating. Okay? And um, the concept of a heavenly sanctuary and whatever was going to happen was happening in the heavenly sanctuary was a really aha moment for them. You know, now, it still didn't take away the fact that they had to get food for that winter, um, you know, and a couple other difficult things. But it was, came as a breath of fresh air and it was just like, wow, yes, Okay. And so in the process, they learned something about God that they did not know before they had gone through this experience, all right? So um, God had revealed to them everything they needed, but they couldn't understand it because it wasn't part of their paradigm, it wasn't part of their thought process, their idea of, of how it should work, okay? Um, it wasn't just an explanation of a mental or a, a mechanical puzzle, Okay? Um, sometimes we don't realize how far we have come until we get a ways away from the aha moments and experiences in our life. I mean, there are probably times in your life that you say, you know, that was a life-changing moment in my life. Um, I came to the belief that God was a, a wonderful being very late in my life. I, as part of my medical school training, was required to take a class from Graham Maxwell. Now, he was the epitome of grace and God's love, but because my ability to communicate with Graham Maxwell was such that I could not do it, his idea of God made no sense to me, and it was awful. One of my best friends and I in medical school would come into Graham Maxwell's class it was a room about this size, full of medical students. We would sit down, we'd raise our hands, Grand Maxwell would not pay any attention to us, we'd get up and we'd walk out. So the entire class period would have our hands raised. And he learned that he could not approach us because we were not kind individuals at that po at a point. Years later, I, um, I was asked to teach a class on the Old Testament. Well, now I'd grown up in a, a very conservative church that had prided themselves on having the Word as being their, uh, their central focus. And so someone asked me to teach the Old Testament. I knew the Old Testament back and forth, I thought. But I thought, well, I need some extra resources. And they said, well, you know, there's this guy out in California. Now, I was in North Carolina at the time. There's a guy out in California named Graham Maxwell, and he has these tapes on the Old Testament, you might want to listen to him. Um, it was with some reticence that I purchased any of them. But I purchased one or two and listened to it for the first time. And then I bought the whole set. And that was an aha moment for me. Okay? And um, I think that's how life goes. We sometimes are so shut in by what we believe that we can't see stuff. Um, if the sanctuary doctrine was such a great doctrine, 
for the early members of this church, something they have in this church, why is it that the sanctuary motif is not good news to the current Simply Adventist Church member? You said it's not. Well, okay. I went on to the internet this morning and looked up the fundamental beliefs of Simply Adventist Church. I went there for actually to copy down the long version of etc. I could import it into my word processor and not have to type it out the whole thing and so I went to Adventist.org an official website of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and they had what do we believe now it wasn't the whole 28 or 29 or whatever it is um, fundamental beliefs thing this was a two page outline in layman's terms or non Christian vocabulary Terms, what the Sabbath believe. I cannot find the the the, um, the sanctuary doctrine in there whatsoever. Now go home and read it, and, and if you find it, that you, oh here it is. Here's the verbiage that talks about the sanctuary doctrine. Then I'll stand corrected. But I read that several times in its entirety, looking and said, okay, I've just spent a whole week, you know, studying the sanctuary doctrine. I should figure it out, you know, that's in here somewhere. I couldn't see it. When I ask people about the sanctuary doctrine, there's kind of a, you know, and, and it wasn't there. Anyway, so why do you think that is? Traditional view has it all about punishment. All about punishment. It's not good news. Okay. I think when you realize what the sanctuary doctrine is in its truth, it will be good news. You know? Anything that God, who is good, is doing for us has to be good news. And if you feel that the sanctuary doctrine, something that God is supposed to be doing somewhere, somehow, is not good news, then somehow we have the wrong picture of what he's doing. So, um, anyway, all right. Um, the introduction to the lesson, um, reading the second paragraph of the introduction to the lesson, the sanctuary formed the template to help us understand Jesus as our sacrifice and high priest. Okay, that's a statement made by the quarterly. And my concern is realizing that it wasn't well understood by the children of Israel. I mean, when, he, when, they, when Christ came, they didn't recognize what he was all about. And yet, this, the whole sanctuary service was about Christ, right? And yet, when, they, when he came, they didn't figure it out. So, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't we look at Christ as an explanation for the sanctuary rather than the sanctuary as an explanation for Christ? Okay? And I still may not have it all straight, but to me, it's a clearer picture of who God is than looking at this ritualistic thing, etc. And it's kind of a, a, a problem. Yes. But why did God give us the say or give them the sanctuary service if it was not to give that picture? Maybe the picture got distorted, but wasn't that the purpose of giving them that picture? I'll go back to Graham Maxwell's class. <clears throat> The same information that I treasure today was there when I sat through six months of pure torture. Seriously. Why was it torture? Because I felt that what was being presented was um, not intellectually correct. Graham would come in to the class, and we were going book by book, and he'd say, what does this book say about God? That was his premise. What does this book say about God? And so you're supposed to read the book and you come back with what does it say about God? You mean the books of the Bible? Uh-huh. Yeah. Old, old, and we were, we were doing the Old Testament. Okay? Um, it split up in half and, and um, somehow I got the Old Testament half, you know, and I only had to take it one, one six months since I was done with him. And so, um, anyway... Um, 
you have to realize that when you come and experience anything that you have a set of colored glasses on that are a specific color to you. Okay? And that you read things through those glasses. Okay? Graham Maxwell came to the, the, the Bible saying, God is good. I'm going to take that as my premise, that God is good. And if I read that God is good, and I read this book, then how does this book say God is good? Okay? I thought that was, at the time, intellectually a little dishonest. I said, okay, coming as a person who's never studied the Bible before. Now, I had. I'd grown up in this very strict religious upbringing. I never missed a Wednesday night prayer meeting for the first 12 years of my life. Even sick, you went to prayer meeting. So I, I, you know, but trying to, okay, take the Bible and read it. And what does it say about God? If you've never heard about God and you read some of those books, you will not come up with the picture that Graham Maxwell had. Okay? You have to assume that God is good when you read that book. Okay? And once you know that God is good, yes, it makes sense. It really does. <clears throat> but if you come and read certain things, you know, dash babies and all the rest, um, without first going to the Holy Spirit and say, listen, the Holy Spirit, I, uh, you know, I'm a broken individual. Please show me your love in this book. He will. But... Um, that's not how it happens automatically. Out of curiosity. Yep. How do your parents feel today? They're dead. About the, well, okay, before they died. Years, the concept of God, since you were raised in that strict... Um, uh, I expect to see my parents in heaven. Okay? But I expect to see a lot of people there who haven't got the 23 fun, or 28 fundamental beliefs down. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. But did their concept of God change? As they got older. I don't think theirs ever did. Really? Um, I'm sure they grew and matured and whatnot in their spiritual walk. You know, but I don't know that they ever <coughs> understood uh, the Bible as I understand the Bible. And um, we had a few arguments um, later on in my life, much to my dismay. I now. They said, uh, I think I think white we're going to be saved by the light we have. So we got the big light or, or little, so we're going to be saved. But maybe the parents are going to be saved by the light they have. You know, well, you know, in, in Romans it says people who never even heard the law yeah. have a law unto themselves. And, and there will be people that say, what's the marks in your hands? The man on the cross. And I, I, I got those in the house of my friend. Yes. I think the important thing is God isn't as concerned about our individual beliefs as he is about us accepting the concept of self-sacrificial love. We may not recognize it from him, but if we recognize the importance of other-centeredness, of love, when we see God, we'll say, oh gosh, I really like you. And I understand where I was wrong. But when our heart is shrunk and shriveled and the concept of love does not appeal to us, that's when we'll look at him and go, I've been waiting for you to punish so-and-so, or I've been waiting for you to draw this line, and you're not going to do it? Yeah. But when we look at him with that understanding of love in our heart, then he's going to be able for eternity to reveal to us all of what we miss. And that goes back to answers her question of if God, if the children of Israel weren't going to get it, why did God give it? The, the instrument was not broken. They were. Okay. Yes. What helped me a lot in my understanding of God is I wasn't raised as a Christian. So when I became a Christian, <clears throat> I was, uh, you know, when you are nothing and then you, you know, you read like John 14. And I remember I read when Christ said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come and I will take you to me. I mean, wow. That was like a wow moment in my life. And... Uh, but then, you know, you kind of become a part of a Bible studies in churches. Like I was kind of going from one church to another. And I realized that just in recent years that I really need to look at Christ. And then 
what what I, for instance, do with the Old Testament books is I take Christ and his character and what he did, and then I would say, well, how does Christ fit into this place? And in John, in the first chapter of John, it says that he was the true light and he was the one who enlightened the world. And then there is in John 1, 18, it says that Christ has explained the Father. So if we take Christ and allow Christ to explain the Father, then I think the Old Testament books are going to make sense. Right. And and it's Christ, as you say, is, is he's the answer. You know, and, and but that's a filter that we have to see, and without that filter, some things are incomprehensible. All right. Well, I, uh, okay. Um, so I went to my coworkers for a word association. You know, you, you have to be careful with what you do at work. But um, no, th- th- these are these are people who work at the hospital who are not Seventh Day Adventist and. Um, I think it's interesting. These people have grown up in Chattanooga, close to 6,000 Seventh-day Adventists. Okay? Seriously. I don't know what percentage of the hospital is as Seventh-day Adventists, but I'd say there's a good number of people who I recognize from church or other venues that are Seventh-day Adventists. And not a single person, I asked 10 people, not a single person, when I asked them the word sanctuary, came up with anything remotely that had to do with the Bible or any doctrine or anything, okay? So I said, word association, what does this word mean? Use it in a sentence as if you were giving a hint at a spelling bee, okay? That was my two questions I went to. The most common response for sanctuary, church. The place in church where you hold services The second response, safety. A place where you are safe. A bird sanctuary. Okay? Or, the dictator sought sanctuary in the church. Okay? Um, I I just think it's telling that you have um, a large institution with at least 6,000 Seventh-day Adventists in this community, in this regional community. And any time I mention a distinctive belief of the Seventh-day Church, it's blank stares. They have no clue. Um, I love that they came up with safety, though, because that's exactly what the sanctuary should be. Well, I got to thinking, um, in the heavenly sanctuary, is that a place where you'd want to be? Absolutely, yeah. Would you feel safe there? And yet, most people would say no, okay? Okay, there's going to be a model of the Children of Israel's mobile um, desert sanctuary set up in, I think it's on Stanford Gap somewhere in the next week or two. And... Um, this could be there for several weeks, that's my understanding. I don't, I don't know all the details, etc. I saw a trailer, etc. You know anything about it? Two weeks? Okay. So there's going to be this, this model set up, you know. And just my concern is how much of the energy will be getting the furniture right and how much of the time is going to get the character of God right. Okay. So much of when I grew up, I learned all the furniture, I learned the dimensions. I could draw pictures of it. I I even made models of it. We got graded on our class in school of making our model of whatever. And, um, you know, with the color of the roof right and the the whole nine yards, you know. And um, I think the bottom line is the fact that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are all working in heaven for my benefit in a space is okay. Okay? And that he used a sandbox, a giant sandbox called the Sinai Desert, you know, with a little model in the middle of it to try to illustrate what he's doing. And, you know, for most of my life, I never got it. So, anyway. All right. I need to switch over to the lesson study in my little gadget um, from the introduction. All right. 
So um, the memory text. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Sabbath afternoon's lesson. Um, there are some questions in Sabbath afternoon's lesson. Does God need a dwelling place? No. No. Okay. That was a quick response. If he doesn't need one, then why does he have one? In my opinion, it's so we as human beings can understand more clearly who and what God is. Because we, we have to have a dwelling place here on earth. We feel lost. We feel we don't feel safe. We don't have a dwelling place. And I think it helps us to understand more of God and his character, what he's like, when he, we can put him like this is where he is. But he doesn't have to have that. Okay. Yes. Well, God is God and Spirit. That is very difficult for us to grasp. So it seems like everything of the physical realm, our physical existence, our physical experience, everything material around us is an explanation or a window into the spiritual of everything. And the sanctuary is a window. The, the physical expression of the sanctuary was a window into the heart of God into the spiritual heart of God. Okay. Could it just be one of his many ways that he continues to try and show us that he seeks us and that we don't have to seek him, that he desires to be with us, he desires to help us understand him. He is seeking us rather than we are attempting to find him. Yes. We're looking at it wrong. What if the heavenly sanctuary is more like what the earthly sanctuary, which is us? You know, we're we're told that we are the temple of God. So, what if the heavenly sanctuary is Jesus, where we have the fullest picture of God in Him, and He dwells in humanity forever in that form? You know, what if we're, you know, we're, we keep trying to think of a building, you know. Um, it's got to be this building in heaven. Well, what if it's not? Well, I've, I've wondered, um, you know, so much of what the imagery of Revelation, which is truly a... Uh, not a literal presentation. I mean, Christ is despri- described as a lamb who is bleeding, who is, you know, sacrificed, etc. And then he gets up and then opens a scroll and all this sort of stuff. And we have all this imagery, this um, representational imagery that we now construct into a physical space. Having said that, we also have that where God is, and they have myriads of angels around in his presence, okay? I have, I have thought that we have never clearly understood the original Genesis statement that God said, let us make man in our image. And we don't know what that means. Absolutely. You know? Um... Because if he truly is a spirit and these other issues that we have already mentioned, then we, we have, are just kind of lost in the little, you know, beginnings of an understanding of what this all means. So, If it's really like that, it almost makes the Bible seem impossible to understand. So like, why even try? It starts out in the very beginning saying that we were made in God's image. It's the very beginning of the Bible. And now we're like, but are we really? I mean, he's a spirit. Are we really made it's like, well, why don't you even try? When we spend, what, 6,000 years trying to figure out are we really made in God's image or not? I think we're making some progress. Okay? <laughs> yes. Well, but in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 6, 17, it says the one who joins the Father becomes one spirit with him. And it also says in, in is it in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 7, you know, that you know, when we we become new creatures, that we you know we become spirit-born new creatures. So, I mean, this is also a component of us that we receive in Christ when we have Jesus. I, I need to move on. Let me let me move on. We'll, just, we'll come back and, and get to a couple other things. Um, Sabbath. I, I'll make it a Sabbath afternoon before we quit. Um, <laughs> the last sentence in the Sabbath afternoon lesson says. What he is doing in the sanctuary is indeed for us. To me, that's an encouragement. Okay? But I instantly had questions, which, you know, we've gone over here before in class, and maybe I shouldn't spend time with it, but I think it's important. Is it? It says it is for us. Is it for anyone else? Yes. 
How about the unfallen angels? Okay. How about the unfallen worlds? Is what Christ is doing now or what he did on the cross for them as well? And if so, what text do you have to show that it's true? There is a text. The reference point, I couldn't give you the, the verse, but the reference point shows, you know, Ellen White says that we cannot understand this, the, the plan of salvation except in the light of the great controversy. So when we begin to look at the great controversy, it, it removes just these humans and then understands all the dwelling angels and, and such. So are we to think that God's going to spend a thousand years with us going over the books trying to figure out this whole understanding of what sin is and not spend any time with the angels and, and those. So when we talk about the great controversy, you know, and the cleansing of the sanctuary, then you understanding it with the great, the, uh, under, with the great controversy and light, there's, the angels have to be going over. I mean, they, they were the ones that were front line when sin entered this world. So they probably have more questions about what this thing is than we do. I don't think God toys with us, okay? But in the same manner in which he gave a, ta- a mobile tabernacle in the desert to illustrate something about universal issues, he has presented this world as a focus where we will spend a thousand years with the universe on looking, answering questions about universal issues. I think that's very true. See... To bring the point a little bit more clear, what the angels really want to know, and Graham said this very often, what the angels want to know is not if if we can come to heaven, but if it's safe for us to come to heaven, right. and they live next to us. Right. So for those angels to accept us to the holy place, to, which would be heaven to us, then they need to know if it's okay for us to come, or for when we come. They need to know that, and they don't need to know it after we come, they need to know it before they come. And then when you look at that in light of the great controversy, then the cleansing of the sanctuary and the, the time where God sits down and talks with the heavenly hosts about who is going to come and who's not makes complete sense. And why and how and... And the puzzle is much easier to describe, to comprehend, when your wife got it for it and handed it to you. If she would have come home and said, okay, here's what the puzzle looked like, here's how it worked, now solve it. You needed the physical puzzle in your hand to solve it. You needed something to see, not just words. I think that's what the book of Job is all about. The book of Job is not about why do um, righteous suffer. It's about God's judgment. Can God really be trusted that when he said, that guy is righteous, that you can say yes. You know? Yes, he was. And someday, Job, when he gets to heaven, will be put around, you know, the arm, the arm of God will be around his shoulder saying, thanks. You know. So anyway, um, just going through some of the texts that we have um, for this global issue. Um, 1 Corinthians 4.9 For it seems to me that God has given the very last place to us apostles, like people condemned to die in public, as a spectacle for the whole world of angels and of human beings. Or, Colossians 1, 19 and 20, For it was by God's own decision that the Son has in himself the full nature of God. Through the Son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross, and so brought back to himself all things, both on heaven and on earth. Ephesians 3, 9 and 10. God, who is the creator of all things, kept his secret hidden through all the past ages in order that at the present time, by means of the church, the angelic rulers and powers in the heavenly world might learn of his wisdom in all its different forms. And the final passage I have is 1 Peter 1, 12. God revealed, these pro- God revealed to these prophets that their work was not for their own benefit, but for yours, as they spoke about those things which you have now heard from the messengers who announced the good news by the power of his Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are things which even the angels would like to understand. 
So it is a global issue, what's going on, etc. Going to Sunday's lesson. Um, God's residence. There are several passages at the beginning. Jeremiah twenty three twenty three. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Psalms one thirty nine. No one can flee from God. It also mentions Jonah. Just as a parenthetically, have you ever fled from God? Have you ever wanted to? I have. You know, uh, some of these stories are probably too personal for each of us to share. But um, sometimes you're just like, "Oh Lord, if I could just get away from you." But that's because I didn't understand who he was. Acts seventeen twenty-seven to 28, it mentions that Paul argues that God is close to everyone, at least in a spiritual sense. Why was this last phrase added? Is God close to us physically? Okay. Are there some people who are closer than, to God than others? Yes. Why? Because they choose to be. In their head, but not in his. In their head. Okay. Are there some people who are physically closer to God than others? No. Only the ones already in heaven. <laughs> what about Enoch? Well, that, <laughs> or Elijah or whatever, you know. Such, or the uh, other people who are resurrected at, you know. Are they physically closer, though? They're just in a different location. <laughs> that was my point exactly. Okay? This whole thing about heavenly sanctuary and earthly sanctuary and, and whatever, you know, they maybe realize it more. It's like the Elisha's servant who didn't know the angels were all encamped around him. The fourth paragraph on Sunday's lesson. Um, God is generally present everywhere, yet he chooses to reveal himself in a special way in heaven, and as we will see, in the heavenly sanctuary. The bottom shaded text, there are many things that are difficult for us to imagine or understand, such as the dwelling place of God, yet the Bible says that this dwelling place is real. How can we learn to trust in all that the Bible teaches us, no matter how hard it is sometimes to understand? Why is it important for us to learn to trust even when we don't understand? Why do we trust even when we don't understand? That's something we already trust God. Okay. There are obviously areas that I don't understand, that I don't know, that I can't explain, but I know that God is love. Because? Because He revealed that to me. He... He showed himself in the life of Christ as someone who is worthy of being trusted. Um, someone who has my best interests at heart. So I can trust him. So these areas where I don't understand, where I can't explain things, where I haven't figured out the puzzle yet, I can still trust that he is still who he says he is. That he is still who he revealed himself to be, even though I don't understand it. Okay. Probably somewhat like parents who trust the most precious thing they have in the world to you when they don't totally understand the procedure that you're about to do on their child. We won't go there. <laughs> oh. Okay. They also mentioned that God was sovereign. Um, what's this on Monday's lesson, maybe? Um, yeah, the throne room. God is sovereign. Not only in the future, but already here and now, God is sovereign. What does it mean that God is sovereign? There's a local religious radio station that many of the preachers on it love to talk about how God is sovereign, that He is in control. I would actually argue that those two are not necessarily equal. Um, you know, uh, Obama is president, but that doesn't mean he controls what I do. Um, right. God is king over everything. That's true. But that doesn't mean that he controls everything I do or everything that happens to me. I still have choice. The fact that he is king doesn't change um, how he rules, which is by truth, love, and freedom. If we didn't have freedom, then he would be in control. Okay. The bottom, there's a paragraph from Mrs. White. Um, As in obedience to his natural laws, the earth 
should produce its treasure, so in obedience to his moral law, the hearts of the people, um, uh, uh, somehow I mistyped that, um, so in obedience to his moral law, the hearts of the people were to reflect the attributes of his character. Okay? The moral law is what? Ah, it's a natural law. Okay? As I say, it's a natural law of the heart and mind. It's the law that, that our hearts and minds run by whether we realize it or not. It's the normal law. Yeah, the normal. Okay? Um, let's say there at the bottom of the page, how can we better manifest goodness, righteousness, and justice in a world filled with evil, unrighteousness, and injustice? Why must we do these things? My initial response was, would it make sense to ask the question, question, why must you use clean gas in your car and lawn equipment? Okay? Why shouldn't you put sand and sugar in your gas tank? You know, I mean, a question like that, to me, is missing the whole point of, of this is how things work. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, I'd like to go to Wednesday's lesson. Um, Wednesday's lesson is titled Courtroom. Okay? Now, I'm not an attorney. I'm a physician. Okay? So I don't know a lot about courtrooms. I know a little bit more, although some days it doesn't seem that way, about physicians' offices. Okay? I would like to contrast the two. Okay? The text of the day... Um, oh, brother. Let me... i got to get my glasses on. The text of the day was Psalms 114, 4 through 7. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. They examine Adam's descendants. The Lord tests righteous people. But He hates wicked people and the ones who love violence. He rains down fire and burning sulfur upon wicked people. He makes them drink from a cup filled with scorching wind. The Lord is righteous and He loves a righteous way of life. Decent people will see His face. The next text was Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in His holy temple. All the earth should be silent in His presence. Now, I don't know how they use these texts for the courtroom motif, but um, I just have a few questions. Um, do we have scriptural illustrations of the sanctuary in the Old or New Testament used as a courtroom? I'm sorry? In Revelation? It's a courtroom? Okay. All right. Um, Any place else? Daniel. In Daniel? Okay. And that, and that was the sanctuary? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how about a doctor's office? Is there any place in the Old or New Testament where the sanctuary was used as a doctor's office? Where the sanctuary was used as a doctor's yeah. office? Yeah. When people had leprosy or they overcame something that was civilly not good, they had to go tell the priest. Okay, they had to go to tell the priest, but they didn't go in the sanctuary. Okay. Okay. So was this was the was the courtroom scene, for example, the disputes of of property and everything else was done by the priest. There was disputes, etc. Was court issues, property, marriage, and all that sort of stuff was done, etc. But it wasn't done in the sanctuary. So that was an external function. It was not an internal function. Okay. Um, so, was the functions that we're describing going to the priest for declaration of leprosy, cleansing, um, the declaration of righteous judgment, and all that sort of stuff, was that a priestly function or was it a tabernacle function? What's the difference? Well, some, some of these things were done inside the tabernacle, okay? 
Whereas other things were done outside the tabernacle by the priest. Okay? But didn't the priest do it inside the tabernacle too? I mean, weren't all the functions that were done inside the tabernacle done by the priest? Yes, but were they court-like functions? Oh, I see what you're saying. Or physician-like functions? You know, those were functions that were done by the priest outside the tabernacle as part of their function, okay? But it was not internal to it, okay? We look at court as being condemnation, verdict, and then so forth, but that's not what the sanctuary and what God's courtroom is like. I don't see any difference between the two. That was my point, okay? Oh, okay. Okay, so... Um, let's talk about some of the characteristics of a courtroom. We're in one, okay? And a physician's office, which you hopefully will never have to go there. Is there fear associated with both? Yes. What are people afraid of in the courtroom? Condemnation. Outcome. How about the doctor's office? What are they afraid of? Outcomes. Outcomes. Okay. Um, are there investigations in the courtroom? Yes. Okay. How about the doctor's office? Yes. Okay. What is the purpose of the questions that are asked in the courtroom? Now, I, uh, that was the quick answer. And I put truth and then I, I had to put a question by it. Because... Um, my nephew is an attorney. I don't think he'll ever see this, so I can, I can talk about this. Um, but I asked him something about a case that came up that it was a national case. It was on when Uzi, et cetera. And it became very evident that in America, at least, in our court process, it is a process. It has nothing to do with the truth. Okay? It is a process. And you can have the process done to you, and then you are legally pronounced whatever, but it has nothing to do with the truth. Okay? So, um, what is the purpose of the questions that you're asked in the doctor's office? I'm sorry? Find a cure. I was just going to clarify. To me, like in a courtroom, you've already got a charge that's been brought against the person. So usually when you're headed into the doctor's office, you haven't been charged with something before you ever get there. So it's but, a bit Okay, there has not been an external charge. Yeah. Okay? Internally, there is a reason that's a charge. When people come to me, they came with this little one-liner at the top of their chart. That is the accusation against them. Crooked legs, can't walk, limp, you know, whatever. And, and so my questions are aimed at obtaining the truth about what is going on and the, and the cause of that. Okay? Is it important for the truth to be known in the courtroom? You'd like it to be, but it's not important to the process. Okay? Is it important in the doctor's office? Okay? What kind of law is typically used in the courtroom? Imposed. And in the physician's office? Natural law. What is justice when applied in the courtroom? Typically punishment, or relief of punishment, or penalty, or whatever. What is justice when it's applied in the physician's office? Uh, I'm sorry. When you talk about courtroom, do you, do you talk about courtroom like this one? Yes. Or do you talk about the courtroom in heaven? There's a big difference <coughs> between these two. The courtroom here, in this courtroom, is not necessarily wanting to know the truth. But the courtroom in heaven is all about truth. Okay. So I, I, I see that we cannot compare apples and bananas. But where do we get our concepts from about courtroom? From here. Yeah. 
So when we come, we, when we come to the scripture or to whatever and are learning about what God is like and we are using the terminology that we obtain in this space. That's the problem. That's the, that's the difficulty. That's what needs to be corrected. It's actually idolatry when you really look at it because we're making God into our image instead of seeing Him for who He is. Okay. So the tabernacle that was in the desert was a, a model of the function of the heavenly and hopefully our courts would be a model of the heavenly but there's some disconnect. Okay? Um, is there pain sometimes in each place? Yeah. What is the hoped outcome in the courtroom? Innocent. Really? Justice. I'm sorry? Depends on who you are. It depends on who you are. Are you the plaintiff or are you the defendant? Okay? What is the hoped outcome in a doctor's office? Healing. Okay, healing. Define justice. Okay. That's how God defined it. Think of justice as things being equal, balanced. Bring back into a right relationship. A right relationship. The right thing. The correct thing. The um, third paragraph on that uh, day's lesson, divine judgment involves both the wicked and the righteous. While the wicked receive a punishment similar to that received by Sodom and Gomorrah, the upright will behold his face, Psalms 11, 6 and 7. Won't both the, riches, the righteous and the wicked see his face? Some will like it, others won't. Revelation 1.7, look, he is coming on the clouds. Everyone will see him. Behold, those who pierced him, all peoples on earth will mourn over him. So shall it be. Isaiah 25.9, on that day his people will say, this is our God, we have waited for him, and now he will save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad because he will save us. Who's going to be in the everlasting fire? The righteous. So Isaiah 33, 14, and 15, the sinful people of Zion are trembling with fright. They say, God's judgment is like a fire that burns forever. Can any of us survive a fire like that? You can survive if you say and do what is right. Don't use your power to cheat the poor and don't accept bribes. Don't join with those who plan to commit murder or do other evil things. Shaded there at the bottom of the page. However much we cry out for justice, we often don't see justice in the present. Why then must we trust in God's justice? Without that promise, what hope do we have? You know, I, I thought of that song, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Um, John fourteen nine. Jesus answered, For a long time I have been with you all, yet you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? Um, I need to close, and so I'd like to make sure that I read the one passage that I think says everything about the heavenly sanctuary. And that is Romans 8. You read Romans eight thirty-one through 39. In the preceding verses just leading up to that, Paul has outlined how Christ is for us, how the Holy Spirit is for us, and how the God the Father is for us. And then he says, in view of all this, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly not God, who did not even keep back his own son, but offered him up for us all. He gave us his son. Will he not also freely give us all things? Who will accuse God's chosen people? God himself declares them not guilty. Who then will condemn them? Not Christ Jesus who died, or rather who was raised to life and is at the right side of God pleading with him for us. Who then can separate us from the love of Christ? Who can trouble, can trouble do it, or hardship, or persecution, or hunger, or poverty, or danger, or death? 
As the scripture says, for your sake we are in danger of death at all times. We are treated like sheep that are going to be slaughtered. Know in all these things we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly powers or rulers, neither the present nor the future, neither the world above nor the world below. There is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. When we read that, we have to say, both God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all facing with facing us, telling us about who He is and what His love is for us. It's not someone turned around in this manner. We've got him facing the wrong direction. Let's bow our prayer. Yeah, it's a prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you are doing for us. May we comprehend it a little bit better each day as we learn about you. Help us that we may have insight from your spirit, that we may not look at you as the world has and as the devil has tried to make you out to be. May we truly come to know you and your, and your son. Amen.